Welcome, everybody. Appreciate you joining us today, whether you're doing that in person at one of our campuses or just watching online. Either way, I'm really glad that you're here. And if this is your first time with us, I surely hope that it won't be your last. On a personal note, I just want to share with you, and I think many of you already know this, that Lori Swift, the wife of our founding pastor, Richard Swift, passed away yesterday morning after a long and difficult battle with pulmonary fibrosis. And as I've just been thinking about her, not only the impact that she has had on my personal life, but just the impact that she's had on who we are as a church family. I I was just reminded that who we are as a church has not just been the result of the vision that God gave Richard 26 years ago, but also the result of the heart that God gave Lori Swift all those years ago. A heart that cares deeply for the hurting, the broken, the disconnected, the struggling, those who are far from God. Many of the things that we all love about Cedar Creek Church, these core values of how we operate have been an outpouring, an overflow of the Holy Spirit that God had placed in Lori. And I'm so thankful for that and thankful for continuing to see that uh, years and decades later. And God willing, that will continue to be the heart of who we are as a church. And you know, when I think about that, in light of all that we see happening in our nation all around us, I am just reminded and I feel like it is necessary for me, not just as your pastor, but for me as a follower of Jesus and a member of this Cedar Creek Church to stand before you in all boldness today and declare that this is a place of hope because we are a people of hope because our hope is not based on the winds of political decisions or even the fate of a nation. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And we will shine that light of hope to the broken, hurting people all around us. And so I want to encourage you, you want to celebrate and honor Lori's life, then open your eyes and respond to the needs of hurting people around you. No better way than to celebrate her, than to live out that love every day of our lives. Amen? Amen. Amen. Yeah, if you'll go ahead and take out your message notes, you know, it's interesting Normally, a new year is a time of great optimism, right? We think of a new year as a chance to move beyond the difficult things of the past and look forward to a brighter future, but this year, can I just be honest, doesn't feel very optimistic, does it? So many of the things that we were hoping beyond hope that we would be able to leave behind in 2020 have followed us into 2021. The pandemic, 
the politics, even the violence on the streets of our nation. And so it seems to me like the only thing that's changing in this new year are the numbers on the calendar. And so today, because of that, I thought we might spend some time focusing on a topic that on the surface may seem not very relevant or or really not in keeping with what's going on in our times, but I am convinced that this topic may be one of the most important topics that we talk about in 2021. I'm talking about time. And more importantly, how do we spend the time that we've been given? And the reason I say that is because I am convinced that the quality of your new year will be less determined by the times we live in and more determined by how we live with the times we've been given. There's so much beyond our control, but this is one thing that we can control. We've said over and over how desperate we are as Christians in this time of the season of our nation and of our world that we are desperate for wisdom. We pray and cry out to God to give us wisdom, but I think it's very interesting to understand that there's a connection between wisdom and making the most of the time we've been given. The reason I say that is because in the book of Psalms, the 90th chapter, there is a prayer prayed by Moses. And I think most of us would agree that Moses lived through some trying times, and yet at the same time, most of us would say that he had a successful life. I think part of the reason for that is this prayer he prays in verse 12. Notice what it says. It says, God, teach us to make the most of our time so that we may grow in wisdom. Did you catch that? That connection between wisdom and good time management. See, most of us think that wisdom leads to good time management. Like the wiser I am, the better time manager I will be. But that is not what this verse says. Look at it again. This verse says the exact opposite. This verse says that the better time managers we become, the more we will grow in wisdom. And I can promise you, the more we grow in wisdom, the better lives we will live. And that's what I wanna go after today, practical ways to help every one of us make the most of this new year. But before we look at these principles, I want to provoke you to think about this topic. I wanna get you thinking about time and time management because most of us at some level have had some training in the area of time management, right? You've either had a seminar at work or you've read a book or you've read a blog about time management. And let me just ask, how many of you have had some sort of time management training or you've read a book or a blog? Yeah, that's almost all of us. We intuitively know that managing our time makes a big difference. That's why corporations and businesses spend billions of dollars training their employees to be good time managers. That's why there are thousands of books on time management written. We know this is an important topic. But I wanna ask you another question on this topic. I think it's a more important question. How does this topic make you feel? 
What emotions does it elicit in you when you think about managing your time? I think for a lot of us, what we feel on this topic is frustrated. Frustrated that we never seem to have enough time to do the things we think we need to do. Anybody besides me frustrated when it comes, you know, you got your calendar, no matter how well you plan, it never seems to work out. Now, some of us, it's not frustration we feel on this subject. For some of us, this elicits the emotion of guilt. We look back over the past and see all the times wasted, all the opportunities missed, all the things we wish we'd have done differently. And so we feel guilty about that. Anybody besides me feel guilt over your time of how you've spent your life? For some of us, it's not frustration, it's not guilt, it's good old-fashioned stress, right? We're stressed, we have so much to do, right? And time just keeps on slipping, slipping, slipping into the future. And we look at where we are in life right now, and we thought we'd have been much further along. And so we, we feel like time is running out for us, sort of like the guy I heard who went to the doctor because he wasn't feeling well. And the doctor did what doctors do. He said, we'll run some tests, come back in a week, and we'll see what's going on. Sure enough, a week later, the guy shows back up at the doctor's office. He's waiting in the exam room. The doctor walks in with a thick folder, obviously, of the results of those tests. And the doctor said, sir, I've got good news and bad news. Which one would you like first? And the guy said, well, I'm trying to be positive, keep things optimistic. Give me the good news. And the doctor says, well, according to your test, the good news is you've only got 24 hours left to live. The guy's like, what? 24? How is that the good? If that is the good news, what is the bad news? And the doctor said, well, I was supposed to tell you yesterday. <laughs> Many of us feel like that. Time is running out and we don't have enough. But here's what I want you to hear. Whatever emotions you're feeling on this topic of managing your time, I want you to know the purpose of this message is not to make you feel guilty about the time you've wasted in the past. It's not to make you feel frustrated that you're not getting enough done with the time you have now. It's not even to give you some sort of super secret biblical formula for being a better time manager. This is just about giving every one of us, whatever season of life, whatever stage of life, whatever issues you're dealing with in your personal life, practical ways, simple things that every one of us can do that can make a huge impact in our daily lives. So let's jump in. Number one, the first key to using my time wisely is just recognize that time is a gift. Recognize that time is a gift. It is a gift from God. We didn't earn it. We can't make more of it. And we have no control of how much we have left. Now on the surface, this seems obvious. This is elementary. This is simple but it is foundational to being wise in how we use our time. In fact, if you don't get this, you will always struggle with managing your time. But if you do get it, if you can begin to wrap your head and more importantly, your heart around the fact that time is a gift, it will not only change how you view time, but how you use the time you have. One of the reasons this is so easy to forget is because of the world and culture that we live in. We are a people of planning, right? 
We plan out our days. We plan out our weeks. We plan out our year. In fact, that's one of the reasons this pandemic has been so hard on so many of us. Not the disease itself, but the inability to plan because of the disease. We don't know what next week, we don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring. And that stresses us because we are planning people. But understand, this is not some modern American phenomenon. This has been a part of the human condition from the very beginning. In fact, you can go back 2,000 years to the early church during the time of Jesus and the disciples, and you can find people who were busy planning their life out. In fact, in the book of James, we read about a group of people in the church there who were making plans about, we're going to move to this city, we're going to start this business, we're going to do this or that. And James overhears them talking, and he interrupts them and calls them out, and he said, you better recognize, making all your plans, you better recognize that time is a gift. In fact, look at what James says in, in verses 14 and 15 of chapter four. He says, but you do not know what will happen tomorrow. Your life is like a mist. You can see it for a short time, but then it goes away. And then James said, so you should say, if the Lord wants, we will live and do this or that. Understand, James is not saying that planning is bad. Planning is not bad. Planning is essential in life. James is just saying you need to recognize in your plans that whether or not you have time or not is in God's hands, not yours. It is a gift from God. When I was a little kid, my grandmother on my father's side, whenever you would ask her if she was gonna do something or go somewhere, she'd never give you a straight yes or no answer. She would always answer with, good Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. Some of you have heard that before. It was her way of recognizing that time was a gift. And the more you recognize that, the better you'll get at making the most of your time. Many of you remember eight years ago when our second oldest son, Rick, was in a tragic car accident, suffered a traumatic brain injury. He was in a coma for a week. We had no idea if he was going to wake up, if he was even going to survive. And then when he did wake up, it was months, months of rehab and learning to walk and talk and all those things, almost starting over. We had no idea how far he would get in his recovery. His accident happened in September and miraculously by December of that year, he was home and with us and almost completely and totally healed and restored. And so that first Christmas after Rick's accident, Terry gave everyone in our family a watch. In fact, I'm wearing mine today. And on the back of that watch, she had engraved this simple phrase, every day is a gift. Every day is a gift. She gave us those watches with that engraved on them, not to remind us of the tragedy we'd endured, not even to remind us of the miraculous healing we had seen. She gave us these because of, in her own experience, having lost both her parents in a car accident, she knew 30 years before that in the weeks and months and years shortly after that kind of trauma, we would all cherish every moment, but it wouldn't take long for us to go back to presuming upon the time we've been given. 
You know, this past 11 months has reminded many of us of how precious and valuable every moment is. And if we're not careful, at some point on the other end of this pandemic, we may very well go back to doing the same old thing and presuming upon the gift of time. Not because we're bad people, but because we live in a world that doesn't teach us that time is a gift to be treasured. We live in a world that tells us that time is a commodity to be consumed. You don't believe me, go to Books A Million this afternoon. Go in the self-help section and look at the row of time management books. There are hundreds of them, different titles, different authors, but they all teach the same thing. They teach you how to squeeze every bit out of every moment you have. But this book teaches a different lesson. This book teaches that time is a gift to be cherished. So how do I do that? How do I treat time like a gift? Two things, one, by valuing it. I treat time like a gift when I value it. What is the value of time? How much would you pay for time? What would you pay for one second, one measly second. What is that worth? Ask an Olympic athlete who spent their whole life training for one race and missed a medal by one second. How much is an hour worth? What would you give for an hour? Ask anybody in our family what we would give for just one hour to sit around the table today and celebrate Phillips Jr.'s birthday with him. The value of time is not whose time it is. The value of time is how you choose to perceive it. And not only do I treat time like a gift when I value every second of it, but also when I realize that I have enough. I treat time like a gift when I realize I have enough. Do you think God is stingy or generous? Which one? I want you to answer this out loud. Is God stingy or is God generous? He's generous. I think all of us would agree God is generous. But what are we saying when we say, I don't have enough time? We're saying that God is being stingy with our time. Listen, if you have more to do than you have time to do it, the problem is not with God. God is not up in heaven going, I blew it with this 24-hour day. Should have made it 30 so they could get everything done. No, the biggest issue with our time management is not how much time we've been given, but what we're trying to do with the time we've been given. And that leads to the second key of using my time wisely, and that is to realize what's really important. To realize what's really important. Being a wise time manager is about learning to prioritize the things in life that really matter. Anytime I talk about this subject, I'm reminded of that classic Bob Seger song, Running Against the Wind, and that great line that says, deadlines and commitments, what to leave in and what to leave out. We all have deadlines and commitments, and every day we make choices about what to leave in and what to leave out, and those choices impact our lives. I heard about a wise old college professor 
who was teaching a time management seminar to a group of incoming freshmen at the university, an important topic for college freshmen. And the wise professor decided to demonstrate time management with an object lesson. And so he pulled out on the desk and he set a large glass jar. And then he reached under the table and pulled out a bucket of rocks, baseball-sized rocks. And one by one, he began to put the rocks in the jar until the jar was completely full and he couldn't put another rock in. And he turned to the students and said, is the jar full? And they said, yeah, you can't get another rock in there. And he said, well, we'll see. Then he reached under the table and pulled out a bucket of gravel, a little pea-sized gravel, and he poured it into the jar, and the gravel began to make its way down, filling in the spaces between the big rocks until the gravel reached the top, and he said, is it full now? Well, the students, having learned their lesson, about half of them said no, the other half said yes, and he said, we'll see. And then he took out a, a bucket of sand. And he began to pour that sand in the jar and the tiny grains of sand began to filter down and fill in the spaces between the small pebbles until the sand was at the top. And he said, is, is the jar full now? And they said, yeah, you can't get anything else in there. And he said, well, we'll see. And he pulled out a bucket of water and he began to pour it into the jar and it began to soak down into the sand until the water was all the way at the top. And then he turned to the students and said, so what is the lesson and one eager beaver type A student jumped to his feet and said, no matter how much you do, you can always do more. <laughs> That's not the lesson, is it? The lesson is if you get the big rocks in first, all the other things will fall into place. And don't you think that's what Jesus meant when he said, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and if you'll do that, all these other things, all these things that we think so, are so important will fall into place. Jesus didn't just teach it, he lived it out. Great picture in Luke chapter 10. Some of you know this story. Jesus is going to the house of his friends, Mary and Martha, the sisters and their brother, Lazarus. And yes, it's the same Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead. So you can imagine how this family felt about Jesus. And so it's not surprising that when Jesus came to their house, they were going to put on the dog. He was their hero. He was their rock star. And so they were going to just treat him, you know, like a king. And so Martha, because she was the oldest sister and responsible for hospitality, she got in the kitchen to fix Jesus the meal of meals, like Thanksgiving dinner and Christmas dinner all rolled into one. And in my mind, I can just see Martha in the kitchen, pots flying around. She's got flour all over her hair, just getting after sweat running down her face and at some point she gets overwhelmed with all she's trying to accomplish and nobody's there to help her and she looks around and realizes her sister Mary's not there she bursts into the den and there's Mary sitting on the floor listening to Jesus like she ain't got nothing else to do and so Martha gets mad and interestingly she doesn't yell at Mary she yells at Jesus which there's a whole sermon in there about how busyness impacts our relationship with Jesus, but she tells Jesus, tell my no-count, lazy, good-for-nothing sister to get up off of her backside and come into the kitchen and help me with this meal. Reasonable request, but notice Jesus' response, verses 41 and 42. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. Only one thing is what? What does it say? 
important. And notice this, Mary has chosen the better thing and it will never, never be taken away from her. Is Jesus saying that Martha's a bad, evil person? No. Is Jesus saying that Martha shouldn't be preparing a meal? No. People got to eat. I believe Jesus is saying to Martha what he is saying to us today, that life has choices, and those choices impact our life. So what are you choosing? What are you saying yes to? Like Martha, are you often finding yourself choosing the stuff that seems important but really isn't? Or like Mary, are you choosing the better thing? And by the way, what is the better thing? Relationships. Nothing more important in this life than relationships. Our relationship with God and our relationships with each other. Good time management means I'm going to have to say no to some good things so that I'll have room to say yes to the best things. But how do you know? How do you know what the best things are? How do you know what the big rocks are in your life? Well, it starts by just getting closer to Jesus. The more connected you are to him, the more you focus on him, the more you will begin to see the things that really matter. When you spend time daily in prayer, not just once or twice a day, but you're constantly asking Jesus, is this what I need to do? Is this the way I need to go? When you spend time daily engaging with God's word, letting those truths enrich your life, when you're willing to connect an authentic community with other believers so they can walk with you and help hold you accountable, the closer you get to Jesus, the clearer and clearer it will become to you what the big rocks in your life really are. There's also a couple of questions you can ask yourself. Just on a practical level, before you add something to your schedule, ask yourself three questions. These are not on your program, but you might want to write them down in the margins. No extra charge. This is free stuff just because you came today. Number one, ask yourself, is it part of God's purpose for my life? Is this something going to help me accomplish God's purpose or not? Because if we're honest, we often try to fit God's purposes into our already overcrowded schedules. But listen, God's purposes were not meant to be squeezed into your schedule. Your schedule was meant to be molded around God's purposes. That doesn't mean you need to quit your job and sell your house and go live as a missionary in Africa. It just means recognizing that everything you do, everywhere you go, everybody you meet is an opportunity for God to live out those purposes through you. Where you live, where you work, where you go today, where you go out to eat, God wants to use all of that. Second question, ask yourself this, who am I trying to please? By saying yes to this, who am I trying to please? Because let's get real, much of the stuff that ends up on our schedule is not because we want to do it or even because we think it's important. It's because other people expect it from us. And if you hadn't figured this out, let me just let you in on a secret. The world is full of people who love to tell you what you ought to be doing with your time. 
Amen. Some of you got people in your life like there are some people who believe it is their spiritual gift to tell you what you ought to be doing with your life. And let me tell you this. If you let them, not only will they fill up your schedule, but they will empty your life. That's why Paul said our purpose is to please God, not people. If I try to please people, I cannot please God. Third question, ask yourself, what's it going to cost? What's it going to cost? Because time is a zero-sum game. Everything you say yes to means something else you will have to say no to. Everything you add into your schedule knocks something else out. And in the same way, so much of our money is wasted on impulse buying, so much of our time is wasted on impulse choices. I'm convinced if we would begin to get closer to Jesus, filter our schedule by these three questions, not only would we be less busy, but we would be much more productive in the things that really matter. And then finally, number three, the third thing we have to do to be wise with using our time, this may surprise you, remember to get some rest. Remember to get some rest. Most of us don't think of rest as a part of our time management plan. I'm pretty sure on your Google Calendar or your day timer, you don't have blocked off for rest or sleep. We think time management is what we do when we're awake, and sleep and rest is just getting in the way of our time management. But listen, God says rest is the number one priority of our weekly schedule. It's so important to God that he put it in his top 10 list. Look at Exodus 34, 21. You must work six days a week. Amen to that. We got bills to pay. We got to work. But on the seventh day, you must rest. You see that? You must rest. And notice, even during the planting season and the harvest season, even in the busiest times of your life. See, most of us think a day off is a bonus we get if we get everything else done. But God says, you don't build a day off into your schedule. You need to build your schedule around a day off. Now, I know what you're thinking. Some of you are thinking, that's easy for you, Philip. You're a preacher. You only work one day a week. And really, that's only even a half day. But let me tell you this. Study after study has shown that people who weekly take a complete day off from work get more done than people who work seven days a week. Look, God not only says we need a day of rest each week, he designed our bodies to need rest and sleep every day. That's how he created us. Look at Psalm 127. It's no use for you to get up early and stay up late working for a living. And then check this out. The Lord gives sleep to those he loves. It's a gift and he loves to give it to you. Those of you who are parents of young children, you get this. Because don't you love it when they're sleeping? And you can just stand there and watch. they're so peaceful. They're not worried about it. They know you got it. They know you'll protect them. They know you provide for them. And they rest in total and perfect peace. If that's how you look at your children when they're sleeping, how do you think your heavenly father looks at you when you're sleeping? He loves to give you sleep. 
Think about this. God made our bodies to require sleep. He didn't have to. He could have created our cells where they could regenerate without sleep. We could be 24-7, 365 productive machines. But God chose to make our bodies so we have to have rest daily. Why? Why would God do that? I think one of the reasons, maybe the heart of the reason, is because it is an expression of faith. When we sleep, we are saying with our actions that we know God can get more done when we're sleeping than we'll ever get done on our most productive day. Probably one of the best ways for you to express your faith is to take a day off every week and make time to sleep every day. So let me just close with this question. Are you tired? Are you tired sitting here today? I'm not just physically tired, but are you just emotionally drained? Are you just completely beat down by what we've been through, not only collectively this past year, but the fires you've walked through, your own personal pandemic? If you're tired, if you're exhausted, I want to share with you an invitation from Jesus himself. An invitation that Jesus is giving to you today. Whoever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, whatever you're going through. But I don't want you to hear this invitation as just a preacher reading a Bible verse. I want you to hear the voice of Jesus himself. So I'm gonna ask you to do this. Just right where you are, would you just bow your head and close your eyes? Whatever campus you're on, those of you that are watching online, on a phone, on a laptop, on a whatever, just for a moment, close your eyes and take a deep breath. Just take a deep breath for just a moment and hear Jesus' voice to you. Come to me. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And then, then you will find rest for your souls. Oh, Jesus, I thank you that out of your love for us, you are desiring to give us rest all the way down into our souls. And so, Father, I pray that you would teach us to recognize time as a gift and to value it every moment of it as precious. Father, I pray that you would teach us to make wise choices about what we do and how we use this gift you've given us. But most of all, Father, I pray that you would teach us to rest in you, to trust you more and be less dependent on our own abilities, our own work ethic, our own accomplishments and our own performances and rest in you. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.